Welcome to the 206.com podcast. I am your host, Mark Morin, and you are listening to Diversity in Film, a 206 podcast series. This podcast series features in-depth interviews with filmmakers and industry experts discussing the topic of diversity in film. Look for episodes featuring director and activist Lin Chen, director and producer Emily Ting, executive director of the Northwest Film Forum, Vivian Hua, rapper Lex the Lexicon Artist, podcast host and film critic Isabella L. Price, world-renowned Disney film producer Don Hahn, director of marketing for Smart House Creative Amy Simon, film critic and podcaster The People's Critic Tim Hall, lifestyle blogger and film critic Aaron Hunley, actor, activist, and model Anna Lynn McCord. Thank you for listening to the 206.com podcast. Let's get to the interview. This is Mark Morin with the 206.com podcast. This is an episode of the interview series regarding diversity in film. And today I am speaking with Aaron Hunley. Aaron, welcome to the conversation. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Now, for people who may not know who you are, you're a lifestyle blogger, writer, film critic. You you wear many hats in all different areas. You have your own website, essentially Aaron.com. Can you start off talking about that a little bit? Yeah, as you said, you know, I wear many hats. Um, I would like to blame my ADD, but I just, I consider myself a serial hobbyist. Um, it's one of those things where I try to do things that are going to keep my brain and my, my spirit engaged. And unfortunately that does mean sometimes taking on too much, but for the most part, I found it really fulfilling the last few years, just really trying to focus more on doing passion projects, even if they're not long-term, just anything that can kind of, um, fill my day with a little bit more purpose and passion, I think is a, is a great way that I've been able to, you know, continue to move my spirit forward, so to speak. So a few years ago when uh, my depression was pretty bad, I decided to start my own website. Generally speaking, I am terrible at journaling. Um, I am great for like the first month where I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna write every single day. It's gonna be fantastic, can't wait. And then, you know, life happens and things just, you know, fall to the wayside and stuff like that. Consistency has always been a problem for me. Again, blame my ADD. But for me, I see my website more as an online journal than anything else. I talk about the things that I care about and less about things that I think are what other people wanna hear. So like a lot of things that I put on my website have, you know, have dealt with mental health. They've dealt with, you know, I've got my uh, film reviews on there. I'm not writing as much anymore about film because I'm doing a lot more podcast interviews. Right now, you know, me and my partner, we just purchased a house. So I'll be doing a bunch of DIY series articles that are going to be on the site. But for the most part, I just, I write about things that that I care about and things that I wish that I had seen more growing up. You know, we live, it's it's 2020 and we have so much at our digital fingertips and a big thing that pushed me to do it was when I started my natural hair journey. I realized that there weren't a lot of articles about African mixed people and kind of living between both worlds and what that meant for self-care and beauty and hair care. And, you know, growing up, I didn't see a ton of people that looked like me. So it was one of those things where I wanted to create an avenue where other little girls and boys who did look like me realize like they're not alone and they, they do have an avenue for resources. 
Yeah, and I think you really hit the nail on the head there with that. And it really leads into our topic of diversity in film. How do you, like, if I just asked you the question, what does diversity in film look like to you? Like, what does that mean? What's the first thing that comes to mind? I mean, it's one of those things where I think that if you look around and everybody, or I would say if more than 80% of the people that surround you in your life, in a film, in a book, are all very similar to your appearance, it's not diverse enough. I think that's the best way to view it uh, from a larger lens, because I don't want to say like, oh, all whiteness, because unfortunately, yes, while white people are still the majority in a lot of art, I don't want people to associate whiteness with a lack of diversity. I think it's more about inclusion and less about exclusion. I like that because it really does have an impact on on everybody and I think it's also not a real accurate thing to just point one direction as to what the problem is. Now going into the topic of movies, one thing I wanted to talk about first, and this is a, a bit of a segue, I noticed on your Instagram profile you stated on there that you're a member of House Ravenclaw and I know you're a big fan of the Harry Potter books and just reading in general. Now, how much has that been an influence on you growing up and into adulthood? I mean, Harry Potter, I have two Harry Potter tattoos. It's, it's, I can't wait to have potential children and read them the series. If not, I'll read it to my future dogs. But uh, Harry Potter was a great escape. It's one of those things where when you grow up, you don't really realize how much a book can influence you, but there's so much power in that series and what it teaches young people. And I think before JK Rowling seemed to have gone on the, I just want to please people train, one of the things that I really respected about her was that she never talked down to children. Right. So the thing that I absolutely loved is that as we grew up, the books grew up with us. And so, you know, about the time that Goblet of Fire came out is about the time that younger kids or adolescents are kind of making that transition into adulthood and they're realizing things aren't as easy as we've all gotten used to. And the thing that I've always loved about it, and that's why Goblet of Fire is probably my favorite book, is that that's where things really turn dark and more depressing and they get, there's a very big reality check. And I think that that's something that a lot of people, I think a lot of people assume that kids, like you just say, you'll understand when you're older, instead of trying to help them understand now. And I think that that's something that I always felt the Harry Potter books did, is it didn't shy away from difficult discussions or hard topics just because of the age of the readers. It just shifted the perspective. So it was still something that was relatable and understandable for us. How do you feel like, or how did you feel as the movies started coming out? It, we all have our mind's eye of how we picture the books when we're reading them. Like, how do you feel about the translation to the screen? I mean, the books will always be better than the movies. <laughs> um, but I think that what really kind of struck a chord is when you are reading a book, and a book describes characters and leaves out the skin tone, who do you automatically place in those roles? And it's it's very difficult for me now to look back and say, oh, who did I mentally like draw a picture of? But it's one of those things where you know that the majority of people when reading these characters pictured white children. Right. And you know, it's one of those things where with the exception of Cho Chang or um, the Patil sisters, like there weren't clear examples of different races in the book. And I'm not saying that you always have to make a clear delineation between like this person is of this descent. Right. But I think that it proves that there is not as much diversity in art as there should be when we all mentally cast, or a large majority of us mentally cast, people that our imagination creates as white. 
And so for me, the Harry Potter series, I, I'm not going to lie and say like, oh, I only saw white people when I was reading it growing up. But the books were really influential on me. And I wish that I could say that mentally back then I had cast people that looked like me in those roles. Right. But I think that, that that's important moving forward is to make those steps and adjustments. Yeah, absolutely. Now, who do you feel, you know, growing up as a, as a young Aaron through uh, adolescence, elementary school, who out there in media, movies, books, whatever, did you really identify with? Honestly, I can't really even remember ever actually seeing somebody that looked like me that I was like, oh, wow, like this is amazing. The closest that I would probably say is Tia and Tamara Mowry, just because they had similar skin tones to me. The way that they carried themselves was similar to how my parents had raised me. But having two people in a sea of media and a sea of art isn't exactly something that you really like hold on to. Now, one particular movie that's come up a lot in these conversations is Black Panther. And for me, going to the theater and seeing it, you could just feel that it was something different you know, who was in the audience and just how everybody felt. Do you feel that was a, a special moment for you as that movie was coming out? I think it's really hard to say that it wouldn't be a special moment for a person of color. For myself, yes, while it was amazing, the movie itself was great. I look at all the kids that I saw coming to those theaters, the kids that, that fully cosplayed and there's still a lot of stigma in, I, I would call it like the nerd verse, so to speak, that like a lot of black people feel very excluded right. from cosplay, from comic cons, things like that, and that they can only play black characters. Well, this was a chance for those little boys and girls to step up to show how much they could enjoy cosplay. And I, I think that seeing little kids come to the movie dressed in full African garb or these videos that were surfacing online of these kids, you know, reciting speeches from Batu and stuff like that. <laughs> and a lot of people researching more about their heritage and, yep. you know, seeing the spike in using Ancestry.com or 23andMe to figure out, you know, what tribe they came from or what part of the continent of Africa. And I think that it's warmed a lot of my heart and a lot of the hope that I have for the next generation of people of color. We still have obviously a very long way to go, but seeing how much joy that that film brought and the amount of records that it that it broke, it proves that the age old stigma of, you know, black led films can't break box offices isn't true. Right. You just have to stop making movies that you think are only going to cater to black audiences and start casting people of color in the movies that you think aren't going to be driven by people of color. And I really loved the effort that Ryan Coogler as a director and just the entire production staff all the way through costuming and hair and production design and everything was just so well thought out. Like, did you, Oh yeah. was that something you really noticed watching the movie? Oh, definitely. And I loved hearing all the interviews, especially when it came out afterward. Um, I cannot remember her name to save my life, but she won an Oscar for costume design for this. Um, right, and she right. has done several, I believe she was also the designer for Selma as well. Um, and she talked about her process for how she went through and studied different cultures and different tribes from different parts of Africa. And I think it's very interesting that Africa is really one of the few places that we refer to almost entirely by just the continent. A lot of people are like, oh, I can't wait to go to Africa. Well, right, Africa right. is a continent, it's not a country. <laughs> and so she talked about researching different tribes from different countries within Africa and what the colors, the 
symbols. Um, they're even down to like their jewelry, what it all meant and symbolized for that culture. And she talked about putting things like the colors of the Pan-African flag in their costume. So like there's the scene where they go to meet the dealer in the casino and all three of them when spaced next to each other, their colors line up to make the Pan-African flag. So it's moments like that that were very well constructed within the film and I thought were, were very specifically chosen and they did a beautiful job of bringing that all together. And uh, as you were speaking there, I was just looking up on IMDb, that was Ruth Carter was the costume designer and I see she also yes, uh, did costume design for Amistad, Malcolm X, and even Dolomite is my name, which I think I think that got some nominations as well, I'm, I think for costume. I think it got a few nods, yeah. Now, I know, I don't know if this is a direct correlation, but I know it can be a transition for us. We talked a little bit about costume design and hair design and stuff like that. There was a point not too long ago for yourself as an individual where you decided to go from straightening your your hair to just how to say it just letting you just wearing have your natural naturally. curly hair yeah. yeah wearing it naturally um can you talk about that a little bit and what influenced you and what led you to make the decision sure part of it was laziness i'll be completely <laughs> honest i'm a terrible right. liar so i'll tell the truth um <laughs> so i moved to washington in august of 2014 i believe i have been straightening my hair since i was 11 years old my parents, of course, tried to talk me out of it, told me that it was ridiculous. All of the people of color on my father's side were like, you're ruining your hair, blah, blah, blah. I didn't care. I wanted to look like everybody else. Growing up, I was bullied terribly for having curly hair. I used to have kids that would hide things in my hair, see how much they could get away with sticking in there before I would notice. Wow. Um, it was just, it was really tough growing up and having, and just, I mean, and kids are cruel regardless of your appearance, you know, they'll find a way to make fun of anything. Um, but unfortunately I was a very sensitive kid and that stuff was always a little bit more difficult for me. So I straightened my hair for most of my life. Um, when I moved here and I went through my first real like season change here, I realized how exhausting it was straightening my hair every morning only to have it rain or mist and go curly in really wonky spots throughout the day just because that's just the weather here. While it doesn't rain as much as the movies make it out to look like it does, it definitely mists and it's gray and the air just always seems to have moisture in it here, which if you have curly hair or any hair that isn't stick straight, the minute moisture gets into your hair, it just, it does whatever it wants. So there are a lot of days where like my edges look like I stuck my finger in a light socket. <laughs> so it just got to the point where I was tired of putting in all of this effort and um, I went through a really bad breakup and after I'd gone through that breakup I really didn't want to put effort into anything so I started wearing my hair naturally but it was really more just out of like I don't want to put in the time and effort to straighten it well then I realized like I, my hair was starting to kind of come back pattern wise so I started researching different uh, methods for how to kind of tame it because curly hair without any sort of product or anything and it is still a hot mess. Um, <laughs> so I looked up to try to find people that had my curl pattern and people who had, you know, enjoyed mixing different products and stuff like that. And I realized that even amongst my friend group, I didn't have a ton of people that had naturally curly hair or had curly hair and weren't straightening it. And so I dug into every Pinterest article I could find. I started doing, I'm a, I'm a research junkie. So when I get my teeth into something, I will stay up until like 4 a.m. every night just digging into <laughs> how something works. And so, yeah, it's been, um, I think I just hit two years, a couple of months ago, I think I just hit two years. It's a, it's been a one year or two years, I honestly can't remember. But uh, yeah, it's been, it's been crazy. You know, it's the weirdest thing to me, to be perfectly honest, is that my partner who I've been with for, for almost two years has never seen me without curly hair. 
And when I was wearing my hair straight, I wore my, I wore my hair straight for longer than I wore my hair curly for most of my life. And so it's so strange to me that there's somebody who's so important to me that hasn't seen that part of me, but it's also very special because they've only seen the real me at this point. And so it's, um, it's, it's been an interesting, an interesting challenge because curly hair is not easy. It takes an insane amount of mental energy to deal with curly hair because no two days are the same. It's been amazing to see the amount of support that I've gotten from family, from friends, from other people who are like, oh, I've been thinking about, you know, going natural for a while and, you know, watching you do all these videos or reading the articles that I post on my blog. They're like, you know, that's really giving me the push that I need. You know, what products would you recommend? And I've helped several people rehab their hair, including both of my sisters and just watching them kind of realize that there's so much beauty to be had in who we are naturally, regardless of what the media tells us or regardless of what we, I don't wanna say the media like they're the enemy, but right. like regardless of what we see culturally day in, day out in TV and movies, like there's beauty to be had in every single appearance that's out there. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the main things that's really been missing, you know, and as far as just discussing diversity in film or even just in, in culture, is there there isn't a lot of diversity in fashion and hairstyle and all of that type of stuff. And one thing that's really become apparent to me during these interviews I've been doing is just how important it is for kids to see yes. differences. One, for themselves, being able to see yourself in a movie or in a TV show is so important. There's a lot of validation there of who you are as a person, especially as a young growing mind, but also for somebody to see other people as well and how they're different and how that influences their decisions growing up and how they interact with people like you were talking about getting bullied for your hair getting teased and i think a lot of people have had similar experiences just because of real just minor differences in who they are because they're not the people that they're that are causing those interactions weren't exposed to it and you know whether it's in their family or their peer group or in media so one of the things that i noticed going back to i want to use the black panther example again and you touched on it i remember being in the auditorium opening night and everybody was dressed up whether it was cosplay just like you were saying but like cosplay or like in their I guess you could say like their Sunday best you know families were dressed to the nines in suits and dresses and, and stuff like that and it really felt like something that was so special for the community and just the atmosphere of that auditorium I'll never forget that experience and for me you know, not being part of that particular ethnic group, I still got to experience that and see the impact that it's having on people. So what would you say would be something that could move the film industry forward in that respect of, of showing diversity to kids? So the first thing that I'd like to say is that I am speaking from a seat of privilege. I am biracial. I am not fully African-American. So my opinion is going to be based on my personal experiences. And mm -hmm. so I don't want to say that I am blanket speaking for all people of color. However, something that I have always desired to see in film is real life. And I know that sounds very simple, but it's, it's, it's all in minor details in my personal opinion. What I love more than anything else is when I see a person of color with their natural hair. Still something that you don't see very often. But what a lot of not melanin inclined people <laughs> don't understand is that when you have natural hair there are different ways to care for it 
that you pretty much have to do or else you won't have manageable hair. Right. So I think I've seen it in like two movies where a black person, when they go to bed, they put a silk bonnet on. <laughs> that is very, very normal in our culture. Right, right. Oh, absolutely. Because like silk and satin are good for your skin, good for your mm -hmm. hair, it keeps the frizz down. You don't see people doing oil treatments on their hair. Like there, right. there are just so many small details that they make it seem like black people just wake up with straight hair and it's perfectly fine or they wake <laughs> up with perfectly curly hair like that is not part of real life and i mm. understand that you know white actors get the exact same treatment where you know they wake up with pin straight hair and they don't have to really do anything mm. however it's there's a different aspect of it when you feel like what you're seeing is is a very different reality than one that is ever faced by people of color so i think for me the big needle move would probably be showing biracial couples and showing natural like hair that is natural in its own environment i mean i can't i'm not going to sit here and say like oh we need to see black people zero makeup on and things <laughs> like that but like those are two really big movie moving needles that i can think of um mm. the other thing would be to stop quote unquote whitewashing characters there are things that are in the way that we speak, the way that we carry ourselves that don't apply to every single person of color. I know that I, I had to deal with a lot of teasing growing up from both black people and white people because people were saying that my family was whitewashed and that we weren't really black. Well, my whole life I've heard, I'm not really black. Well, I am black. I am also white, but I am black. Being black is not significant with one specific thing. And so I think that I would like to see also the varying levels of blackness that are in actual reality for this country is that not every single black person grew up in the projects and had a tough time and had a dad that wasn't present or anything like that. I would like to see kids that are perfectly well adjusted because they do exist in the real world. And I understand that the reality that they portray in movies is the reality for a lot of black people in this country, but it isn't the only reality. And like you said, when you have exposure to those things, when you're young or when you're old, it gives varying perspectives to audience members. And so if an audience member has only ever seen a black person as a gangster or as a slave, then those are the things that whether they realize it or not, they're going to subconsciously associate with African-Americans. Right. And so I, I don't want to see an African-American prison film. Sorry, seen mm -hmm. it. Uh, the, I know the Academy absolutely just dies for a slave film, but I'm over it. We have <laughs> right, so many, right. like we talked about it in the Feel and Film Black Label, which is a subset obviously of Feel and Film, the podcast, yeah. and it's me, Coles, Colby, and Emmanuel. And we talk about how, you know, we had these magical Negro characters and these stereotypical people that if they want a token black friend, I'm just gonna stick that in there for you. Right or the, the movies that follow the exact same plots when there are amazing, amazing people of color throughout history and we just get the exact same slave movie told to us 10 times. So for me, I need to see more branching out in storytelling. And I think that that comes from showing people in their natural state, not whitewashing them, showing, I mean, black people like white people and white people like black people. It's how me and my sisters got here. Like <laughs> seeing more of that on television would be fantastic. Yeah, I think that would be a real key to authentic representation versus token representation yeah. because you do see a lot of where it feels like they're just filling a quota. You know, a, oh, a friend a yeah. friend is placed in the story just because they need that, you know, street cred angle to work on yep. or something like that. Or they like have that. like witty one-liners that are always the comic relief. <laughs> exactly.
there's one thought that I had that is actually escaping me now, but as I draw that back, I'm gonna change the subject a little bit. One thing that I know you participated in in the past is you were actually on American Idol. Now, can you talk about that? And now this is coming from me as I used to be a huge American Idol fan and I actually remember seeing you on there once I got to know you. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember, I remember seeing you on there. Can you talk about that experience a little bit? And was there anything that you felt was impacting you as far as the, the topic that we're talking about? I don't know if it really plays into this conversation at all because it wasn't mm -hmm. something that was that was really in my face because um, so this happened, this would have been, uh, when was I in college? This was, I believe my sophomore and my junior year were the two years that I did it, um, okay. season 10 and season 11. Everybody's gonna ask, I'll just say it now. Um, <laughs> the first year that I did it was the year that Ellen DeGeneres did it. Dancing with Ellen was one of the highlights of my life. So the both years I got through to Hollywood Week, there is uh, there are things that I can't legally talk about um, about right, the right. process to get to Hollywood Week. But it was it was amazing. The first year that I did it, I met uh, and I still talk to Todrick Hall. He's fantastic. I adore him. The second year, I again got to Hollywood Week. Both years, I made it through to the second round of Hollywood Week, which is group night. The second year that I did it was the year that JLo started on American Idol, oh, and okay. she's the most flawless human being in person. <laughs> like, I have literally never seen someone so beautiful. I don't even care if she was all done up in makeup, hair, heels, everything. She was in like the sequin bodysuit. Like, I swear <laughs> that, like, it was glowing and it wasn't the suit or the rhinestones. It was just her. Like, she right, was just right. so unbelievably stunning. And that was amazing. And it was really cool to come back the second year and actually have them remember me. The first year that I did it, my dad is who got me into music and is my singing partner. My dad is my best friend. And so he dared, the first year I did it, I didn't want to do it, but he dared me. And my dad's the only person that can like get under my skin with stuff like that. So I did it my first year. and I just kind of kept getting through each round and I was kind of just like, oh, all right. I guess we'll go to the next round. My dad flew out to Hollywood Week to be with me, and my favorite memory from all of like both years was when it actually went live, the very last shot of the night before they cut to commercial was when I got through the first round of Hollywood Week, and you can hear my dad like hollering in the bleachers <laughs> of the theater, just so excited, and he's like, you go, baby girl, like go, and you just oh, see wow. me like walk out, and I'm like crying, and I just yell, I love you, daddy, <laughs> and like the whole thing cuts to black. It was like the greatest memory. And then the second year that I did it, got through to Hollywood Week again, but I mean, it was never really a diversity issue. The biggest thing for me that I realized, especially after my second year, because the first year I did it on a dare, the second year I wanted to go back and see if I could actually do it on my own. It really didn't come down to diversity. It came down to me really realizing that I, and I don't say this negatively, I don't have star power. I don't want to be the singular human being in a spotlight. So I think that the reason why I got cut on group night each week is because I just love music and I just love to sing. So for me, I'm not in a group to push somebody down a set of stairs and step on them on their way so that I can stand in the spotlight. That's just right. not who I am. And I'm I'm the kind of person where I'm like, can't we all just get along? Like we're all here, <laughs> this is the group project. We should all do our part and everybody gets an A. But that's that's not what American Idol was about. And it's it was about how far are you willing to push yourself to get to the top? And I just, I didn't care enough. Like, right. and there's nothing wrong for the people that, that did. It's just, it's not who I am and it's not who I was. So I don't think it was really about a diversity issue. I think that still at that point in my life, like to tie it in, I was still finding my voice both metaphorically and 
physically. So it wasn't ever really a thing where I felt like I wasn't being heard or I wasn't fully being seen as a diverse candidate. There were plenty of people from all walks of life when I went to Hollywood Week both times. And thank you for going into that. That was a little bit of an indulgence for me. So it's it's fine that it doesn't necessarily pertain to the topic itself. But no, that's really cool insight. Thank you. Now, one of the other thing that I was trying to recall is one thing I've noticed recently is how streaming platforms like Netflix, Amazon, all these different you know labels that you can go to. It seems like there's a little bit more of a focus on independent filmmakers being able to create the projects that they want versus the Hollywood machine demanding that a creator does what they want. I think that that's definitely true and I think that we are at a time in history where a lot of indie and small studios and diverse studios can walk into streaming platforms and have those meetings where they weren't able to do it before. I still don't think that there are a large percentage of the catalog of streamed content but one of my favorite things that Netflix does is Netflix has, I believe it's a, I don't know if it's a specific social media account or not, but they have something where they talk about what's new, what's black and what's coming to Netflix. Oh, really? So they specifically talk about movies and TV shows starring predominantly people of color or written by people of color that are coming to or leaving their platform every month. Oh, wow. And so I think it's really important to showcase and highlight those projects, not for the purpose of saying, well, watch this over the, you know, those white people movies. Movies, right, but right. as a way of giving a voice to those that might just go unnoticed because it may not be at the top of your streaming queue. So I think it's just, it's a great way to highlight a different type of film genre. I do think that there still is not enough representation in the big Hollywood hits, obviously, like you mentioned, but it's nice to have a secondary outlet, especially with us all being trapped at home. Now is a time for those, you know, those smaller films or those small studios to have a bigger impact. Yeah, that's a that's a real key is that access. And, you know, I, I'm glad to hear that there is platforms like that on social media, because one of the big complaints that I hear from people, if you log into Netflix and I run into this myself, is you see like the same 20 movies that it shows you. Even when you try to filter into different categories and genres, it's still showing you the same thing. So, you know, I think that's important to have that availability. I mean, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of movies that are available on these platforms that you may never even know about because, again, studios are paying them to to yeah, feature their exactly. movies. And, and I know Netflix really tries to focus on kind of their own version of their blockbuster content, even though they're putting out all kinds of different stuff. Like everybody knows a movie like Extraction that has come out recently because it's got Chris Temsworth and the Russo brothers were involved, but you may not know about some of the smaller indie productions. I'll start to wrap things up a little bit here. Is there anything that you wanted to add into the conversation of diversity in film that we haven't touched on? I think that what each person listening, like my request, would be look at what you've watched the last 30 days. What percentage of that is predominantly made by, written by, or starring people of color? If it's less than 50%, step it up. It's not something where you can specifically say, well, I just, I don't like it. Well, not every movie that stars people of color is exactly the same. So how can you say that you don't like something if you aren't willing to continue to try? Yeah, that's a really good point and a really good challenge for people because I know one of the ways that people, I think, again, we're generalizing here and not everybody course, fits, yeah. fits these envelopes or, or categories, but I think a lot of people look at film in those different aspects. Like, you know, yeah. that's a black movie, that's an Asian movie, that's a white movie. And unfortunately, when you look at that category of that's a white movie, that's often most commonly referred to as just that's a movie. That's a movie. Right. Well, and Versus I think that if you, the Asian or black or whatever culture it's coming from. 
if you even look at how the Academy Awards happened and mm. why there were films that should have had some nominations and weren't, the voters were literally quoted saying, like, I didn't think that I would like that ethnic movie, so I didn't watch it. Right. In my personal opinion, I don't think that you should be allowed to vote unless you can prove that you've watched these movies. Mm. Oh, yeah. And I think that it's just like the presidential election, like you shouldn't be an uninformed voter. Right. And so for me, especially when it comes to film, I understand that the majority of films that you are going to have to watch if you're a member of the Academy are huge. I get that 100%. But I don't think that your laziness should negate an artist's incredibly difficult task of trying to please audience members. So for me, like if you respect the art in any way, then even if you watched Hustlers and you were like, eh, it wasn't for me, you at least can then be an informed voter to say like, this didn't work for me. Right. But hey, this one aspect did. So it's like, for me, I just think people need to step out of the box that they don't realize they've put themselves in by stepping out of their comfort zone and trying, new, it's just like trying new food. You can't live off peanut butter and jam sandwiches for the rest of your life <laughs> as much as I would love to. Like, right, right. Me, I would love to live off peanut butter and jam sandwiches and macaroni <laughs> and cheese. Right. I tried Indian food for the first time like a year ago. Now I want it like every single week. Yeah. So it's just like, look look at what your, it's, I mean, you could literally apply it to anything. Look at what movies you watch, what TV you watch. Look at your friend group. If your friend group isn't diverse and you don't have people from different, and I'm not even talking about just race, but if your friend group is not diverse and you don't have people from different walks of life, then can you really say that you're an educated consumer of life? And we've talked a lot about diversity as far as race, but you also have to look at it as, you know, economically, you can look at it as gender, you know, all different ways is how diverse are you living your life to the point where you're not looking at, like there's a movie, then there's a black movie, there's exactly. food, and then there's Asian food. It should just all be movies and food, which are two of my favorite things. And you know, I, I try to dip my toes into different things as well. So I think that's a great challenge for the audience is take a look at, you know, do a little bit of self-reflection and say, what what am I consuming right now and how is it affecting me? No, that's really, really good insight. Thank you very much. And Aaron, you know, I really appreciate you being on this podcast series with me. Thank you so much for being a part of this. And I really appreciate you being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening. This is Mark Morin with the 206.com podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you to Aaron Hunley for being part of the show. Episode 10 is the final episode of the Diversity in Film podcast series and will be released on Monday, July 6th. The episode will feature Anna Lynn McCord, an actress, writer, director, and producer. She is also a model, a TEDx speaker, an activist, and a spokesperson. Anna Lynn's leadership in speaking out on sexual assault and human trafficking led her to taking on the role of president at Together One Heart alongside founder Somali Mom. Human trafficking is a cause I feel very strongly about, so having an opportunity to speak with Anna Lynn about that and about diversity in film was an opportunity I'm thankful to have had. Make sure to mark your calendar and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any future episodes or any future seasons that will be coming really soon. Also, if you need to catch up on any of the previous episodes, you can find them on 206.com and through most major podcast outlets. As always, thank you for your support and thank you for listening to the 206.com Diversity in Film podcast series.